go to your phone or whatever and um, just type in ashop.org backslash teachings and it will come up for you. And today we are going to finish the book of Galatians. Next week we jump into Ephesians. And um, let's just jump right in. Father, uh, we thank you for your word, Holy Spirit. We ask that you come and make your word alive in our hearts, Lord. Whatever we need to hear, whatever we need to learn today from what Paul teaches us, we ask God that we not only take it to heart, but that we live it out. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Paul's kind of doing, for no better word, house cleaning at the end of this letter. He spent a lot of time, we've talked about it, about really about the pretentiousness of those who had gone about teaching <clears throat> that Paul's teachings were incorrect because salvation required more than just faith in Christ. The salvation required an additional work. Um, for the Judaizers, it was telling people they had to be circumcised. Men, they had to be circumcised in order for their salvation to be complete. Others were challenging what the, the vision that Peter had had about the animals that came down unclean. In fact, Peter even backed off on what the Lord had said to him and he began to say that you can't be fully saved unless you are fully kosher, uh, eating kosher food, observing uh, Jewish holidays. And, and Paul has been, for no better word, debunking all of this um, in this letter to a number of churches. Remember, Galatia is not a city. Uh, Galatia is a region. So there's a number of cities that he's writing to. The church at Antioch was a church in the region of Ephesus. And so <clears throat> he has now talked about how we examine our hearts, and now he's moving into, finally, relationship with each other, how we are to deal with people who have been deceived and who are walking in a way that is contrary to what Jesus taught and to what the Word of God says. And so he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But in himself alone and not in his neighbor. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Each will have to bear his own load. So <clears throat> Paul's talking about part of our responsibility is to devote ourselves to making others' burdens lighter. In other words, this is, he says, this is the way we fulfill the law of Christ. Now, we spent a lot of time in these previous five chapters talking about the law, how we've been set free from the law. And so we've been set free from the burden of the Mosaic law. But he's not talking about that law. He's talking about this radical law of Christ. And the two are... I don't want to say diametrically opposed because they go hand in hand, but one is based upon works, the law of Moses. The other is based upon love, which is the law of Jesus. And we, we went over this in chapter 5. It said if you are led by the Spirit, you're no longer under the law. It's talking about Mosaic law, not the law of Christ. Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Again, the Mosaic law, not the law of Christ. So the difference is, Moses gave us a law, and when I say Moses gave us a law, Moses received a law from God on Mount Sinai that he came and he gave to the children of Israel, but it was a law that could not change our hearts in a way that would prompt us or encourage us to obedience. And, and so um, our pride and our rebellion wasn't conquered by the law of Moses. We are still prideful people. Israel was still a prideful nation. 
over and over and over again, Israel falls because they could not keep the law. And they couldn't keep the law of Moses because of the pride of their own hearts. Because they thought themselves to be something that they weren't. They, they began to measure their spirituality by the actions on the outside. And again, never measuring their heart. And so when, when Jesus summons us to obey his law of love... He offers himself as the one who paid the price to kill this dragon of pride that we carry. And it is pride. And let me just say, pride has two sides. A false humility is just as prideful as an oversized ego. Someone who's constantly saying, I'm no good, I'm no this, I'm no that. It, this focus is still on them. As opposed to someone who says, I'm good, I'm great, look at how wonderful I am, the focus is on them. So there's two sides to pride. And so Jesus came and he slayed, is when he kills, killed pride once and for all. And so, and then what happens is when he kills pride, it allows our hearts to be changed and empowers by his spirit for us to fulfill his law, which is the law of love. And the law of Christ is easy, and here's why. The law of Moses is hard because it seems like the harder you try, the more you fail. The harder you try to be good, the more difficult it becomes. The harder you try to become self-righteous in your own strength and your own might, the harder it becomes and the more you feel like a failure. With the law of Christ, it's just the opposite. He says that when we are weak, he's strong. That if we learn to cast our cares upon him, he cares for us. And it's easy because his law produces the fruit of love. The law of Moses produces the fruit of the flesh. Now, again, let's understand. The law of the Moses was established for the children of Israel as they had come out of captivity in Egypt for 400 years. And it was established as a way for Israel to have a relationship with God and God knowing that they couldn't keep all these laws made a way for them to reconcile themselves to him by animal sacrifices. So God set up a sacrificial system at the tabernacle outside the Holy of Holies. He set up a way where people could offer sacrifices on behalf of their sins, knowing this, that no man would ever be able to keep the law of Moses. In fact, the law of Moses became so hard that we took the Torah, which is the law, and then the religious leaders created the Talmud, which is additional laws written by men to help interpret the laws and to put more laws upon people. And let's just look at it this way. If law was easy to keep, we wouldn't need prisons. We wouldn't need jails. We wouldn't need traffic cops if laws were easy to keep. Um, and so there is this within our nature that wants to run according to our own law, run according to our own estimation, justifying some of our weaknesses. And yet Jesus says, <clears throat> that law, you, and every command in the law of Christ is a call to faith. So the law of Christ is this. We are to trust him in every situation. What, what Janet just prayed for, for someone who does not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, who does not have faith, would seem like foolishness to pray for God to use um, death, use sorrow, use fire to draw people to him. But for us who know God, know that he uses circumstances and he uses his love to draw this out of them. What, what Janet didn't tell you is our granddaughter Mackenzie, when she, she had actually called her friend to come see her that morning because her friend had lost a lot of weight. And Mackenzie wanted to know her secret for weight loss. Her secret was cocaine. And obviously Mackenzie didn't want to go down that road Hopefully, yes. But that night, the girl 
died in a car accident of her own doing. It wasn't hitting another car. She drove her car. An accident happened with just her car, and it took her life, and we don't know what happened. But that has been, hopefully, a wake-up call for our granddaughter. So it is, and that is the law of love. That is God working in Mackenzie's life. I wouldn't say, you know, God killed this girl so that Mackenzie would come to him, but God uses sorrow and brokenness by his love to draw us to him. And we've gone through this in Galatians. You know, through faith, God supplies the spirit of Christ. Through the spirit, we produce the fruit of love. And through love, we fulfill the law of Christ. So God has given us everything necessary through Jesus to be able to fulfill the law of Christ, to walk in love. So if you trust him, you will fulfill his law of love, devoting yourself to the lifting of burdens of others. And that's what Paul is talking about here. So a burden, because none of you know what a burden is, I'm going to help you understand. A burden is anything that threatens to crush the joy of our faith. Now, I just want to tell you how God works in my life, and, and he, he may work differently in your life. But I find that as I get to a close place of intimacy with the Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm at that place to where everything just is feeling like good. All of a sudden, I will begin to feel distant. It'll feel like, okay, what am I doing wrong? Am I, am I not praying enough? Am I, am I not meditating enough on the scripture? And I found in my life that the Lord doesn't want me just to sit here in this comfort place. And the way he gets me out of comfort is he draws away from me, encourages me to go after him. And in that process, it causes me, first of all, to look at my heart and go, okay, am I doing anything here that is causing him to, to be, causing us to be separated? And I found there are times when I'm doing okay. I mean, I'm not perfect. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about in my pursuit of God. I'm actually a good place, and yet I feel further away from him than I did two days ago. And it's because he wants to draw me to a deeper place. He wants me to walk deeper in love. He wants to prepare me for something else that, that lies around the corner. And our responsibility in the kingdom and in our relationship with each other is to understand that when tragedy comes, there is a threat of tragedy to, to make us doubt God's goodness. What we're believing God will use for Gabriel, what we're believing God will use for Mackenzie, the very opposite thing, the enemy is speaking to them. The enemy is saying to them, where is God in that? How can you say God loves you and cares for you when he allows everything you own to be burned up? How can you say God loves you and cares for you when he allows your friend to be killed in a car accident? And so the enemy will take tragedy and he will turn it into doubt toward God. And so, and, and what it is, it's a sin that threatens to drag us into guilt, into judgment, into offense at God. So one of the things we have to be certain of is to understand God is sovereign. There is nothing that happens in your life that God doesn't know about. There's nothing that happens in your life that he doesn't know about before it happens. But God is not the Wizard of Oz sitting behind a curtain pushing buttons and pulling levers to make bad things happen to try and get your attention. God, God's law is the law of love. God is loving us in every circumstance to draw us closer to him. And so um, I read this book years ago that had a profound impact on me. It was by a man whose name was Paul Bilheimer. He since died. A great man of prayer, but his daughter died of cancer and he prayed and they prayed and they believed and they believed for healing for his daughter and as much as they prayed and as much as they believed his daughter still died and you come to that crossroad you come to that place where going God where were you in the midst of this I did everything you told me to do I prayed the prayers you told me to pray I declared the verses that your word says to declare and she still died and the result of that of that conflict in his heart and that conversation he had with God caused him to write a book called Don't Waste Your Sorrows. And it's about his journey through the brokenness of his daughter's death, bringing him back to a closer relationship with God that he had before she got sick. 
God takes our sorrows. God takes our brokenness. And if we'll run to him as opposed to away from him, he will take those sorrows. He will take those catastrophes. He will take those disasters. And he will use them in our life to his glory. Not to our benefit. Not to something to make us, you know, a person of renown. But something to bring glory to his name. And so a person who's in the midst of sin needs our help in walking to restoration. Part of our responsibility, we say we're going to bear one another's burdens, says that I love you enough to where if I see you walking in a way or pursuing a way that is going to lead to your demise or to sin, my responsibility is to go to you in love in the law of Christ to confront you and to help you overcome that temptation or to help you walk out the fruit of your falling. And, and I've had to do that many times. And I've, I've actually had to get on an airplane and fly to another state to go to a friend who had fallen in sin and said, Look it, I'm here to help you walk out of it. I'm here to help you understand how you got there. And to see what we can do to walk you out of it. And I had that friend look me in the face and say, I'm good with God. I'm okay with God. You know, yeah, I fall and I keep falling in this area, but, but I've got it covered. Don't worry. We're okay. And not wanting my help. Not wanting me to come alongside and to help them deal with overcoming this sin in their life. And so if, if you find someone with a breakdown... Do what you need to do to restore the person to a godly running condition. And, and that's, that's what love does. Ultimately, only Jesus can forgive and repair the breakdown of sin. But it's our responsibility to help them walk through. I mean, if, if we looked at it in the physical, if we're walking out of this building today, well, I'll use an example that happened in our own life. If last year, I think it was last year or the year before, we had gone to, we are going to dinner with Jan Wickersham, and the restaurant we went to was too long of a wait, and we walked out. As we walked out, she tripped, and she fell down in the parking lot. Okay? Now, we didn't say, oh, you dummy. Lee picked her up right there. Why didn't you see it? No, we rushed to her immediately, picked her up, made sure she was okay, helped her to the car, continued to call and check on her. Are you okay? Are there any bruises, anything going on? We will do that in the physical. But our call, according to Paul, is to do this in the spiritual as well. If we know someone has fallen down, if we know someone is struggling in sin, if we know someone is struggling in doubt, it's our responsibility to come alongside and say, how can I help you walk this out? How can I help you live this out? And our job is to warn others about their attitudes and about their habits and about their plans that are wrong and to point them to Jesus, not to condemn them and not to emphasize the wrong choices, but to point them to the one who can give them freedom, to point them to the one that can help them overcome those things they encounter. If we care about someone's welfare, we are going to confront their sin just as much as we'll comfort them in a time of trouble. It's the same responsibility. It's the same action. The true definition of community, which this room is, is defined by how we fulfill the law of Christ. How we fulfill the law of love. And, and Paul goes on and he warns us about you know, arrogantly responding and, and fixing somebody. And we're talking about arrogance. He's, he's saying, you, you don't say to the person, um, you know, you, someone comes to you in your sin and you say, look at who are you? You know, all, all spiritual to come and tell me, what about your own sin? And I can't tell you how many times um, I get this verse thrown at me when I'll go to somebody and say, you know, you probably shouldn't have said that. You probably shouldn't have done that. We probably should have done it another way. And people will say, well, don't talk about the splinter in my eye when you have a log in your own eye. You know, there is this arrogance that says, you know, um, 
and, and Paul's not saying that you're all proud and sinful, therefore you have no business pointing out someone else's sin. That's not what he's saying, because we are sinful. What he's saying is this. We all struggle with pride. We're to make every effort to humble ourselves when we point out someone else's sin. We need to come to them in humility. And here's how we defeat pride. We should be spiritual before we take on the burden of confrontation. In other words, we've got to make sure our heart is right before God. And, and how do we do that? First John 1, 9, we confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We are then able to go to a brother or sister in love and confront the sin, confront the brokenness. Not confront the person, but confront the issue in their life. And so if we're led by the Spirit, we walk in the Spirit. And if we walk in the Spirit, according to Paul, and we've gone over this, we bear the fruit of the Spirit. See, the, the, the measuring stick for how we walk in the law of Christ is really measured by the fruit of the Spirit. And again, it's not the fruits. They're not individual. All of them together make up the fruit. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And so spiritual people are ordinary people. Spiritual people bleed like you bleed. They get angry like you get angry. They say things they shouldn't say. They do things they shouldn't do. Spiritual people are ordinary people <clears throat> who rely I'm struggling with a cold, if you haven't told. I'm not going through puberty again. It is, uh, <clears throat> it is a cold. <coughs> so we are ordinary people, <laughs> and that fruit is. And through that, he produces his fruit. <coughs> and that fruit is love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or meekness. So the spiritual person is going to help the brother or sister, <coughs> sorry, who is in error by pointing only to Christ where there's healing. See, our job, our responsibility, I am going to get through this. <clears throat> Our responsibility is not to focus on the error. Our responsibility is to focus on Jesus. We're to point them to the place to where they will find reconciliation. Point them to the place where they'll find forgiveness, where they'll find freedom. A proud person will not help because attention is drawn away from themselves and is not pointing to the healing. There's nothing worse than someone who's going to someone else with the attitude that I can fix them. Because you can't. It's impossible for something that's broken to make something else that's broken whole. You're both broken. The only thing that brings wholeness is the law of Christ. That is love. And it is love, according to Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, it is love that wins every time. It is love that believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's love that never fails, which is the law of Christ. So there is forceful pride and there's timid pride. I just talked about that a moment ago. Paul says that your problem is that you think you're something when, in fact, you're nothing. But there's others who will say, oh, no, the reason I don't confront people is because I'm afraid not because I'm proud. I'm, I'm afraid to confront. And, and listen to what God says about that. Through the prophet Isaiah, here's what he says to Israel. I, I am he that comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Or the son of man who is made like grass and have forgotten the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens. So God says to the children of Israel, don't be afraid of man, be afraid of me. 
The fear of the Lord is, is where wisdom begins. Don't be afraid of rejection. Don't be afraid of, of confrontation. You know, God's saying, who do you think you are to be afraid of mere men when I am your God and I have infinite power? The fear of man may feel humble, but God says the fear of man is rooted in pride. We're afraid of what they're going to think about us. We're afraid at how they're going to talk about us to others. And so when, when Paul is speaking here about confronting, um, you know, our, our failure to fulfill the law of Christ is twofold. First of all, we think we're something when we're nothing. Or we think we're something. Um, or, or we think we're nothing when we're something. It's, it's the, it's the and, and I typed that wrong, but just you know what I meant and not what I said. And so Paul is speaking morally here. He's not speaking physically. So what he means is apart from the grace of God in us, we are a moral zero when it comes to sinfulness. Paul says, there dwells in me that is in my flesh no good thing. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So this isn't what the Lord tells us to do, and not allowing the fear of man to keep us from being and doing who God has called us to be. And so the other thing we have to be afraid of is not to measure our moral achievements by the achievements of others. Measure them, test them by the law of Christ. Don't measure your spirituality by your friend's spirituality. Don't measure your spirituality against my spirituality. Don't say, don't ever say, I want to be like that person. Don't ever say, I wish I were them. What you want to be is like Jesus. That, that is our goal. That is our assessment. That is who we are to reflect. We are to measure and to test people by the law of Christ. And then whenever there is in you something you need to boast about, it's not going to be based upon someone else's inferiority. Paul says again, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. He says when he writes to the Romans, in Christ Jesus, I have a reason for boasting in things that pertain to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except that which Christ has accomplished through me. So Paul's saying it doesn't matter what I do. It's not me who does it. It's Christ. Therefore, I can't take the responsibility for any of it. And you may confront a brother or sister in love, and that confrontation may change their life, and they may become the greatest evangelist to ever walk the face of the earth. But the reality is there's nothing to boast in what you did. What we boast in is what God did through your confrontation. What God did to the heart of that person to change them, to cause them to walk in the fullness of who they are. So there's nothing that we do spiritually. I don't care if, if you pastor a church of 10,000 or if you pastor a church of 10. It has nothing to do with what you're doing. It has to do with what God's doing and how God's working. And so the cross of Christ and the work of His Spirit in our hearts removes erases all pride and all boasting. Don't ever try and lighten the load of your sin by comparing yourself to someone else. Don't ever say, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. So what? Sin is sin. God doesn't have this ruler, and different sins are written at different places on the rule, and he measures you accordingly. He has one stick. It says sin. We're measured, and our sin is measured against righteousness. Anything that is unrighteous is sin. Whether it is a, a thought or whether it is an action, before God, it is the same. So don't ever, if, if you've told a little white lie, don't ever say, well, at least I didn't lie like so-and-so. Because the issue is you both lied. Don't ever measure yourself against somebody else. Don't ever try to justify your sin as being a lesser sin, which measured against somebody else's sin, because Jesus died for all sin. When he was on the cross, when he said, it is finished, every single sin was covered, and he didn't say, this sin, this sin, it's all sin. All sin was covered. <clears throat> when the final assessment comes... When we stand before God, we are going to be measured 
not according to Mosaic law. We're not going to be measured by what we did. We are going to be measured by how we loved. We're going to be measured against the law of Christ. When you read Matthew 25, which is the parable of the sheep and the goats, and if you have a Bible that has bold captions, you know, among, among these five verses, here's the caption what these verses are about. When you get to the parable of the sheep and the goats, it will say, Christ's judgment of the nations. And so it's talking about sheep nations and goat nations, but what God measures them against, if you look at when he has the goats come, he measures them and says, look it, I was hungry, you didn't feed me. I was naked, you didn't feed me. And they said, well, we never saw you hungry. We never saw you naked. We, if, we, if we'd seen you, we would have definitely done something about it. And Jesus says, as much as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. As much as you did not fulfill the law of love, you did not love me. And to the sheep, he says, I was hungry, and you fed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And as much as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. The measurement of nations, the judgment of nations at the end of the age is the law of man versus the law of Christ. Man will say, well, had I seen you hungry, I would have fed you. Jesus said, if you love like I love, you're going to feed anybody you see who's hungry. And in doing so, you feed me. And that is how we are going to be measured at the end of the age. Our faithfulness is not based upon faithfulness to the law of Moses. Our faithfulness is measured on how we lived out the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is fulfilled by the love. The Bible says it's the Holy Spirit that pours love into our heart that enables us to have a revelation of God's love and love Him. And the fruit of that love, the fruit of the Spirit, is love, patience, joy, peace, that whole list of which I don't remember all nine of them right now. But it ends with, against such there is no law. So we're to keep the law of Christ. And, um, and so no one else, you know, is going to make your, your load lighter by being worse than you. And... You know, you'll bear your own load in that day. You're going to stand before God, not responsible. You're not going to say, well, God, at least I wasn't as bad as this person. You know, God's going to say, well, I just see sin. That's all I look at is sin and righteousness. Now Paul goes on, <clears throat> and um, evidently there was a problem there in the region of Ephesus, and, and Paul addresses it this way. He says, let the one who is taught the word, in other words, if he was here, he'd be speaking to you, listening to him. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so Paul is talking about the one way that the um, Galatians had failed to bear the burden of those who taught was to not take care of them by helping them provide a living so that they could spend time studying to teach the Word. So he's saying if you're one being taught, you should share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, I really struggled with even talking about this since I'm sitting here teaching and I'm talking to you. Um, but when the Lord spoke to Jan and I about leaving our pastorate of a denominational church and starting a house of prayer, one of the things he said to us specifically was we were no longer to take a salary, a paycheck for what God's called us to do, that we are to trust him and allow him to provide. So for the whole 15 years we've been here, we've never come and said, we need a paycheck. You need to, you know, all the time I spend studying, you got to make sure you take care of us. Because the Lord took care of that before we started. And it was really something for Janet and I to live out. And God has been incredibly faithful to us through these years, meeting our needs, <clears throat> providing when we have provision, and um, 
we still have people who have never been a house part of the house of prayer who have supported us for 15 years who still support us to this day we never ask for a penny and i can just tell you so many stories about how god takes care of us we had a time just the beginning of last year where some people who had been giving said i can't we can't afford to support you anymore so we're going to stop and and immediately we had a, a fairly large sum of our monthly support disappear and we just said look it the lord said he's gonna provide we're gonna go to the lord we're not gonna write support letters because he told us not to we're just gonna trust the lord within i'm gonna say well it took a while for us to i mean we had to go through the valley of the shadow of death you know <laughs> We had to go through some months of, okay, God, what, what are you doing? What's going to happen here? And then one day I get a call from somebody and said, the Lord just told me I'm to support you in this amount each month. It was $5 more than the amount that we had stopped receiving from people who weren't supporting us. And that's just to say that we do what we do because God's called us to do this. But, but in a church, according to Scripture, the responsibility... Of those who are being taught, those who are being admonished, the responsibility is to make sure that the teacher has time to study, which is basically what Paul's saying. And evidently something had happened with the Galatians to where they weren't supporting the teachers anymore. And so Paul felt compelled that I got to say something because there's a lot of churches here where pastors are not having the time to study to teach the word because they're having to work to support their families and they're not able to do what God's called them to do. And so, I don't know, maybe they started out well and then they just kind of fell off. They, they grew weary and well-doing. You know, maybe they were arguing that we're free in Christ now, so we're free and having to give money. Um, we don't know what they were saying. We don't know what's going on, but obviously something was happening that Paul wanted to say, look at part of your responsibility of sowing is to make sure you plant into the life of your teacher so that your teacher can produce fruit in your life. And so, and he goes, and, and Jesus did this too. When he sent the 70 out, if, if you read that passage, he says, I don't want you to take anything with you. I just want you to take the shoes on your feet and the clothes on your back, and as you go to a town, it's their responsibility to feed you and to house you and to care for you. And Jesus said this, because a laborer is worthy of his wages. And Jesus said, if you go into town and you can't find anybody who will invite you in, who will give you a place to sleep, who will feed you, I want you to wipe the dust of that town from your feet and to go on to the next town. So it's also a principle that Jesus said should be adhered to, that those who teach should be cared for by those who are taught. With that said, this is not a message for me saying to you, I need a raise, okay? Because I don't need a raise. Two times zero is zero, so we're good, all right? So, but this is what happens. And Paul, even when he writes to Timothy, says this, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading on the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. And so Paul's saying, look it, this is a principle of God, and God is not going to be mocked. And he goes on and says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever you sow is what you are going to reap. And there's always a time lapse between reaping and sowing. If you've ever planted a seed and you want something to grow, you know that it takes a while before even when it first breaks to the ground, if it's, if it's a fruit-bearing tree, it takes a while for that tree to mature enough to produce fruit that you can eat. So, don't, so God's saying, don't be deceived. Just because you've stopped sowing, don't think you're still going to keep reaping because you are going to reap exactly what you sow. And if you stop sowing, there's going to come a day when there'll be nothing left to reap. And so you can deceive yourself for a while. You can just say, it's my money, you know, and the bottom line is, according to Scripture, 
It's not your money. It's not your husband. It's not your wife. It's not your kids. It's not your house. They all belong to the Lord. Emmy's new car belongs to Jesus. <clears throat> but she gets to make the payment. <laughs> so Paul says, don't be deceived. He said, if you think you can go on and not take care of those who are teaching you, you're mocking God. And just know this, <clears throat> God's not going to be mocked. <clears throat> Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. <clears throat> and, you know, the Old Testament example, there's a lot of them, but I was, I was drawn to the story of Elisha in Gehazi. And if you remember when Naaman you know, came to Elisha to be healed of leprosy. And Elisha said, well, go out into the Jordan River and dip yourself seven times. And Naaman said, come on. It's got to be the dirtiest river around. There are a lot of clean rivers back where I live. Can I go home and dip myself in one of those? And, and Elisha said, no, seven times. And if you know the story, <clears throat> Naaman was not healed of leprosy until after he went down the seventh time. So six times in muddy water, who knows what was going on in that river that he didn't want to get into. But the seventh time he was healed. So he wanted to pay Elisha. He wanted to put all this treasury, but all this money. He says, I want to pay you. And Elisha says, no, because I'm not the one that healed you. God's the one who healed you. So I'm not going to receive anything. So Naaman heads back. Gehazi, Elisha's servant, goes, I could use some of that goodness. I could use some of that bounty. So Gehazi chases after Naaman, goes to him and says, my boss changed his mind. He'll, he'll take something. So go ahead and give it to me and I'll take it back to him. Well, the Lord talks to Elisha and tells him what Naaman's doing. When Naaman comes back home, and here's what it is in 2 Kings 5, he says to, Na <clears throat> to Gehazi, where have you been, said Elisha to Gehazi, his servant? Have you not run after Naaman for money? Are you not more real? Behold, lockets with gold than to magnify the God of Israel? Behold, the leprosy of Naaman shall cleave to you and to your descendants forever. God is not mocked. Your greed has come back upon your own head. So Paul's saying the same thing. God's not going to be mocked. If God has spoken to you, I mean, he's talked to us about giving. You know, we're not legalistic here. We're not always saying tithe, tithe, tithe. We're saying give as God puts on your heart to give. You know, and God's not going to be mocked. If you say, I'm not going to do it, eventually there's not going to be any fruit because you haven't sown any seed. And for Naaman, his greed, he sowed greed. He reaped the fruit of greed, and that was not only upon him, but upon his children and his grandchildren and all the generations that follow. And Paul goes on to say the verse 8, <clears throat> For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So what's at stake here? is your attitude to the teaching of God's word and the use of your goods is eternal life. So in other words, it, it, it may sound like a, a return to salvation by works, which I've already debunked. That's not what we're talking about here. Works are the attitudes and actions of the heart which expect to be credited for its achievement. That, that's what Paul's saying. That, that's not what God's looking for. Nobody can save himself by works. You can't save yourself by circumcision. Israel couldn't save themselves by the works of the law. Genuine conversion to Christ is not an act merely of saying, I believe in Jesus. In fact, Jesus says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, but I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. So and Jesus was going to say, look at Believing isn't enough because even demons believe in me. It is the confession of the lordship of Jesus Christ, and it is living according to the law of love. Your salvation, 
listen closely. Your salvation is not measured by what you say. It's measured by who you are. Who is Jesus living inside of you? And if Jesus is living inside of you, the measure of your salvation is demonstrated according to the law of Christ. And the law of Christ is love, which is manifest in the fruit of the Spirit. So there will be plenty of people that say, I accepted Jesus as my Savior. I mean, I've, I have a great, I got an email this week or a text this week from somebody who I spent a lot of time with who, who told me, you know, I'm a Christian, but I'm a Christian who does cocaine. And what's wrong with that? And I don't need Jesus to help me get off of cocaine. I can get off on my own. And the truth is they couldn't. And, and they lost their marriage. Everything blew up. Well, they moved away. They got into a community of fellowship. They got into a relationship with their family again. Sent me a text this week saying, you were right. I couldn't do this without Jesus. And Jesus is the Lord of my life. And uh, I have musical talent. I want to give it to the Lord. And I really want to anoint my guitar. So should I do it by myself or should I have my pastor do it? And then he said, and I'm working hard to bring my parents up to Azusa to meet you and to meet David. And the works of their own foe, that's someone who believed they could, by the works of their own flesh, walk in righteousness and came to realize they couldn't. And so we need to understand that just because you say, I'm a Christian who does cocaine, in all likelihood, I'd question your salvation. What is the fruit of your life? The fruit of salvation is this, the law of Christ, the fruit of love. How are we living out? Now, there are a lot of good people who do good things and think because of their goodness that God is going to give them a pass. And Jesus took care of that when he talked to the rich young ruler. He said, don't even call me good. Nobody's good but God. You know, and, and so our goodness is not measured by who we are. Our goodness is measured by who Jesus is inside of us and how that is exemplified in how we live our lives. And there's nothing worse. There's no greater sadness <clears throat> than to have your life end and have someone attend your funeral and hear the testimonies of your life and your salvation and have them say, I didn't know they were a Christian. I didn't know they loved Jesus. You know, we have a responsibility to live out the law of Christ. If you look to your own flesh to sow the harvest of fulfillment, according to Paul, you're going to reap corruption. The fruit of the flesh is corruption. The fruit of the Spirit is that whole list that we have in Galatians 5. So Paul says, Let us not grow, grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. Again, we were thinking about planting a lemon tree from scratch because <clears throat> we use a lot of lemons. But we'd have to put it in a pot. So we thought, let's just take the seeds out of a lemon and save them and let's put them in the ground and let's grow a lemon tree. But then we began to research how you have to let the seed die, you have to let it dry out, and you probably have to plant 15 or 20 seeds a certain way, let them germinate, then put them here. And out of those 15 and 20 seeds, you may get one tree. We thought, man, it's a lot easier to go to the grocery store than to try and grow a lemon tree. And that's the thing. Paul says, for in due season, you will reap. Anything you plant is not instant oatmeal. Anything you plant takes time to grow, to bear fruit. And he says, don't give up. Don't allow your desire for fruit to stop you from sowing if you're not seeing the fruit when you think it should come. When I look at Delia, Delia planted the seed of prayer over her husband for her entire marriage. 
It wasn't until just before he died. She didn't get to live a whole life with a godly man. But she sits in her chair today confident that she'll spend eternity with him. Confident that he repented of his sin and he came to Jesus. But that was 30, 40 plus years of praying for the salvation of her husband. Loving him, yes, she's going to add to it. Delia. Today's anniversary, 11th anniversary of his death. Wow. But the joy that she had when he gave his heart to the Lord was overwhelming, even though in the midst of that he was battling a terrible cancer that was devouring his body, not only on the inside but on the outside. Um, and she loved him through it, and he loved Jesus eventually. Now, <clears throat> he came to Jesus because he had to drive to L.A. to get cancer treatments, and he had to listen to preachers on the radio going down and coming back and going down and coming back twice a day. The law of Christ healed him. While Delia lived out the law of love, the law of Christ, he eventually came to Christ. See, but that's years of sowing. So whatever you're sowing into, whoever you're praying for, whatever you're believing for, whatever you believe God's called you to, whoever you believe God's called you to do, don't give up if he's called you to do it. Do not allow your assessment of who Christ is in your life and what he's called you to be be based upon what you think the fruit is supposed to look like and when you think it's supposed to show up. Paul says, do not grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will reap, and here's the key phrase, if you do not give up. Don't give up. The well-doing is what we must not tire of, and that well-doing is the fruit of the Spirit. Don't grow weary being patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and self-controlled. Don't grow weary of manifesting peace and joy and all kinds of acts of love. Don't lose heart in spending yourself through love because if you do, the works of the flesh take over. If you stop sowing to the Spirit and sow to your flesh, you don't reap eternal life, you reap eternal corruption. And that's why I say, if you truly want to see someone's life and how they live for Jesus, simply look for the fruit of the Spirit in their life. Look for the law of love in their life. Are they demonstrating patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control? Are they manifesting peace and joy and love? Because those who truly love God and have given their heart to him, that's the seed that's been planted within us, and that's the fruit that we bear as we do that. And it's in the smallest of situations. Jesus says this. If you give a cup of cold water to someone who is, in thirst, who is thirsty, the kingdom of God has come. The fruit of the Spirit is manifest simply in a cup of cold water to a thirsty person. To that person who sits on the street or comes to you to your car and says, <clears throat> can you give me money to buy food? That act of giving them money to buy food, that's sowing seed. And you're not sowing that to say, okay, I gave him 10 bucks. What kind of fruit am I going to get back? Maybe I'll get 100 bucks back now. No, the fruit we're looking for is the fruit of spiritual life inside of people's lives. We love people because we want them to know Jesus. So, in other words... You live your life in the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit means we live by the Spirit. Paul says this in this verse. So then, verse 10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, he's referring back to the teachers. He's not saying, let's just do good to those outside. Remember, in the household of faith, you have people <clears throat> who have donated their time to teach you, make sure they're taken care of. <coughs> okay. So, let me wrap this up. It's actually the mindset of being legalistic or the mindset of being a new creation. If you're legalistic, you are going to think self-righteousness is enough to merit favor with God. 
But if we're a new creation, Paul says this in verse 14 and 15. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And so what is this new creation that counts for everything? It's this. The new creation is what exists when the old mindset is crucified with Christ. Paul says, I've been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to me. So he's saying Christians who believe in self-denial for Christ's sake are crazy. That, that's called asceticism. We're doing a fast right now. If you think somehow this fast is to the benefit of God, you're stupid. You know, here's, here's the mindset of a new creation. We boast in the wonder of the cross. We, we cherish the benefit of the cross. Uh, the cross is the pride and joy of a new creation. That's why Paul says, I'm crucified to the world. Paul's joy, Paul's identity was the cross. We're like dead people. We're fools at best. We're scorned and persecuted at worst. <clears throat> I told you on Christmas Day in Iran, over 100 Christians were beheaded simply because they were Christians, and they chose Christmas Day to do it, to mock Jesus. That is the fruit of them boasting in the cross. For us, we are afraid that somebody's going to not want to be our friend or is going to ridicule us or, or write something derogatory on Facebook about us. Paul says, you know, that we, here's what he said, 2 Corinthians 6, 8, we are treated as imposters, <clears throat> and yet we're true. We are treated as the unknown, and yet we are known. We are treated as dying and yet we live, as punished and not yet killed. As far as the world is concerned, a life devoted to Christ is a throwaway life. And we're going to see that happen more and more in our culture. Just know that culture is rejecting Christianity, and to reject Christianity, they're rejecting Christians, and they will reject you. You will be persecuted for your faith if you walk according to the law of Christ. Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 4.13, we have become and are now the refuse of the world, the off-scouring of all things. <coughs> Paul's saying the world has become refuse to me, and I've become refuse to the world. And so there, there are... And we know them, and he ends with this. There are self-exalters versus Christ-exalters. And this is what he says to close out this chapter. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my own body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Here's his conclusion. The mindset of self-exalters or legalists or people who are licentious, and licentiousness means that uh, you find your identity in the pleasures of the world. Self-exalters desire to make a good show in religious rituals because they crave the applause of key people. Self-exalters fear persecution and rejection from men more than they cherish the cross of Jesus. Self-exalters regard outward forms like circumcision as the essence of a religious life. Self-exalters remove the stumbling block of the cross by ignoring and despising its implications. But Christ-exalters, who we are, this is how we live. Christ-exalters regard the pleasure of human applause as garbage compared to the pleasure of knowing God. Christ exalters expect and accept persecution from a world that crucified Jesus. They don't fear men. Again, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, and hardships, persecutions, calamities, for when I am with creation. Christ exalters 
regard an inner new creation as the essence of religious life. And Christ exalters glory in the cross. Christ exalters cherish the cross above all things. None of us will be saved because we're perfect <clears throat> or because anything we do earns God's approval. The peace of God and the mercy of God are free gifts purchased on Calvary for all of us who walk by this rule. Right standing with God is not merited by works. It is given freely to those who glory in the work of Christ on the cross. I urge you to come to the cross. If you're at the cross, I urge you to glory in the cross. And I want to end with this quote. <clears throat> Christ crucified is the basis of all our prayers, the assurance of all God's love, the certainty of full forgiveness, the ground of all our hope, and the fountain of midnight peace and morning mercies forever and ever. Simply put, the book of Galatians is telling us this. We are called not to walk according to the law of Moses, but to the law of Christ, which is to, to walk in the fruit of the Spirit and fulfill who Christ has called us to be. Because in due season, you will reap. You will reap what you have sown. So, Father, set your seal upon this. May we walk in the fullness of the law of Christ. May we every day measure who we are by how we love people, because that's how Jesus measured himself, by how he loved us. And we thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.